Uma Gyana Timiranda Sya Gyananjana Salakaya Chakshurunitam Dhenatasmai Sri Guru Venama Nama Shrishnamanumapi Sachiputram Matraswarupam Rupam Tasyagrajam Urupurim Maturim Gostavatim Radha Kundam Giribaram O Radhika Madhavasam Prapto Yascha Patita Kripaya Shri Gurum Tam Natosmi Bande Shri Krishna Chaitanya Nittananda Shodito Gurudai Pushpabando so I'm very happy to be here tonight at the kind invitation of my Guru Bhai, my God brother, my Ishwar Prabhu. This kind of talk is real aid for the hearing, actually. It's good, it's Karnamrit, nectar for the ear, topics about Krishna. So, as I mentioned, I'm happy to be here tonight and to meet with all of you. And on an auspicious occasion at that, the Janamastami, or the birth day, if you will, of Bhagavan Sri Krishna. And in the audience, there are a number of people, all um, at different levels of spiritual progress, understanding, interest. Some persons are, as I can see, even some old friends of mine, and initiated members of the Gaudiya lineage that I've been affiliated with for the last 30 years, my whole adult life, and some persons affiliated with other traditions, spiritual traditions. Some may not be affiliated with any tradition. Some may be just curious or coming for the dinner, as may be the case. I will try to speak in such a way that everyone will get something from it too high for some and too low for others. So if you find me going in a direction that you can't follow, be patient. Someone else will be following that. And if you find me going too slow, too low for you, then you be patient also. I want to speak a little from Bhagavad Gita. Maheshwar Prabhu requested me to, to pick a verse from the sacred texts to speak from. I mentioned to him that my system is usually not as formal, but I pray and then I speak. But I selected a verse, and I see that he's put the verse here. It's a verse from Bhagavad Gita. And I'm going to speak from my recent edition of Bhagavad Gita, my most recent book, Bhagavad Gita, It's Feeling and Philosophy. And I noticed the translation is from another edition of the Gita. So when I read from this one, if you're following that one, don't be too confused. Because although they're different, they're the same also. And that says something to us as well about the very doctrine, the metaphysic of Sri Chaitanya, the founder of the lineage in which I'm coming to you. He read the nature of reality, the nature of the environment, to be bed abhed, achintya bed abhed. Bed means difference, and abhed means not different. Bed abhed. He said it's somehow inconceivably and this is what he drew from the scriptures. The nature of reality is that it's one and it's different at the same time. So to give a simple example, in his outlook, in the words, how the world spoke to him was, for example, such that he understood living beings like ourselves to be one with God, but different from God at the same time. A kind of a dynamic union, if you will, that is something that we have some semblance of an experience of in love, even ordinary love of this world. Because when we love another, we really become one with that person in many respects. We accept their heart and their mind as ours, and they accept our heart and our mind as theirs. At the same time, there remains a difference, because I've accepted your heart and you've accepted mine. <laughs> There's still two hearts. They're one and different at the same time. I'm one person, but I have energy by which I do things. Shakti. 
So in a general sense, if you talk about my Shakti, then you talk about me. By my Shakti, I write books, for example. So you could say, I know Swami, he writes books. I have one of his books. So you'll be talking about me, but by way of talking about my Shakti, my energy, by which I do things, and by which I can be known to a large extent as well. But as much as I have Shakti, I'm also the source of that Shakti. And all of us have Shakti or energy. I'm not just speaking about myself, of course. We all have energy by which we accomplish things, and we are, in a relative sense, the source of that energy. So we're the energetic, and we have energy. So the two are one, and the two are different. Fire is nothing more than heat and light, in one sense. But we could have heat and light, and we could have fire. We could step into the heat and the light, but we might not want to step into the fire. So... I was speaking all this kind of double talk about oneness and difference, things that seem incompatible. As I mentioned, we have two different translations of the same verse as a difference, but there's a, a oneness also. A short antidote may serve to help you appreciate this point relative to this particular edition of Bhagavad Gita that I'm going to speak from. My Guru Maharaj, my Guru Dev, he was once asked by his Sanskrit editor, at that time he was doing an edition of the great Bhagavad Purana, 17,000 poetic verses, and commenting upon it. And so his editor asked him, he said, Prabhupada, after you finish the Bhagavad, what book will you write next? And my Guru Maharaj replied, I think Bhagavad Gita. And his editor said, but Prabhupada, you already did the Bhagavad Gita. That's already in print. It's already published. So Prabhupada said, oh, that is only one edition. There can be so many. So he had some idea that uh, there could be more to say about what Krishna has said in 700 verses to his friend and disciple Arjun on the battlefield of Kurukshetra, where this sacred conversation took place. And it just so happens that the first thing that my Guru Maharaj ever said to me was, he cited a verse from the Bhagavad Gita, the concluding chapter of the Gita. There Krishna says that no one will ever be more dear to me than one who explains the message of Bhagavad Gita to others. And in the context of speaking that verse to me, he talked to me and several others who were with me at the time, we were together, he talked to us about writing books. And someone said to him, well, Prabhupada, you've written the books, we'll just distribute them to others. He said, no, that's not enough. So he expected there would be some growth in his disciples and that they would carry on this type of lineage and ongoing discussion about the nature of reality. We're discussing from a book. It's an interesting point. My Guru Maharaj used to sometimes compare the Shastra, the scriptures, to law books. Just like the society is run by the law books, he said, so these are the spiritual law books. It's interesting because the metaphor is often taken to imply that it's all set down here in stone. It's in the book, it's written there, and this is how it is. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It's in the book. If you want to say something spiritual, you should refer to the book and so forth. But if we let the analogy, the metaphor out a little bit, we know that the law books, which are there, Oh, one thing, but the law is being determined on an ongoing basis according to time and circumstance. We may cite the law from the past, relevant in connection with the situation in the present, and the law may be adjusted to determine what the law is, is something that is an ongoing discussion. So what is the nature of reality? It's an ongoing discussion. That doesn't mean we can't reach a conclusive understanding of it and arrive at realized knowledge as to the nature of being. But when we do, this is from Vedanta Sutra, Shankar, the great monistic commentator, liked to render it and comment upon it like this. The nature of the reality is that you cannot say anything about it. It renders you silent. Along with that, he would reason, and wisely so, that if you move, you must be unfulfilled, 
Otherwise, why would you move? In other words, if you have desire, then there must be something lacking in you. So his idea of the fullness of the self was one that was empty of desire. But it's an interesting idea, and there's a lot of truth to it. The metaphysic of Sri Chaitanya, in my humble estimation, if you will, takes it a step further. He says, oh, the nature of ultimate reality, it has a stillness in comparison to the movement that we're all involved in at the present. But it has a movement also. What is that movement? When one becomes so full, then there's a kind of movement that's not out of necessity. Under the force of karma and material desire, we move out of necessity. You know, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. I've seen a bumper sticker like that. (laughs) This is the, the idea. So we have to move. We live in a plane of experience in which our very sense of self is threatened with the potential for non-existence at every moment. Ayurharati by Pumsam. Ujjanastam Jayanaso. Srimad Bhagavad says, Ayurharati. And this is Savai Pumsam for everyone. For everyone, for all beings, for all people. Ayurharati. The Ayur, like in Ayurveda, the life, Ayurharati, is being taken away. All living beings' life is being taken away. Udyan astam chayanaso. With the rising and the setting of the sun, our lives are being taken away. That means our sense of self that is being taken away. Our sense of self is based on our desires. We are, in a sense, at the present moment, our desires. What is this composite that we call ourself? So many desires. Through the medium of the senses, we gather information about the nature of existence. A message is relayed to the mind, and the mind, sankalpubikalpa, says, I reject this, I accept that. It means, I like this, I don't like that. This is good, that's bad. This is happy, this is sad. This is hot, this is cold. And an identity based on this sankalpubikalpa, this acceptance and rejection, I like this, I don't like that, is arrived at, and that we call ourselves, that self will not endure. How real is it? In common English parlance we say here today, and gone tomorrow. With the rising and the setting of the sun. We think it's beautiful, the rising and the setting of the sun. We like to go to the ocean and watch the sunset. And it is beautiful. But there's more beauty to it than what titillates the eye. What can this I know about the experience of beauty? Very limited. We think that because we have eyes we can see. But because we are seeing through these eyes, we can only see a very small percentage of the picture. We are the seer. We are the experiencer. There's a difference between consciousness and matter. Matter is experienced, and consciousness is the experiencer. We might ask ourselves, without consciousness, would matter matter? (laughs) So our sense of self, based on sense perception and the desires that result from our senses being in touch with the world in a particular way, this sense of self, that is being taken away by the rising and the setting of the sun, by time's influence. Still, that sunset is beautiful because it's telling us that The movements of nature are speaking to us constantly, very loudly, about the nature of this particular plane of experience that we are caught up in. But we don't listen very carefully. So this Bhagavad sloka I quoted, Ayurhati Bhai Pumsam Ujjanastan Tayanaso, that's the first half. Says something very nice. Says, this is so that the sun rising and setting is taking away everyone's life except for one, one type of person. Who is that? Uttama Sloka Vartaya. Uttama Sloka means beautiful poetry, supreme poetry. It means Uttama Sloka Vartaya means who's always talking about the supreme poet, about God it means. He's a poet. 
after all. I love her. And therefore, Sri Chaitanya told the nature of ultimate reality is that it's still, in comparison to the movements of this world, which are based on material desire, unfulfillment, movements that are done out of necessity, if I don't eat, I'll die. So I have to eat, and to eat I have to work, I have to be busy, I have to move. He said, yes, the nature of ultimate reality is it's still in comparison to that. But it has a movement, another kind of movement. What is that? When one is full, sometimes he just celebrates. Not out of necessity to move, to accomplish anything, but out of fullness itself. And this kind of movement, dancing, the celebration of Brahman, that great one, the absolute, that is what we call Krishna Leela. And talk about that. We can never do enough. So that slok, that sutra of Vedanta I quoted, Ikshaternashavdat, we render it according to our Vedanta, Bodhya Vedanta, a little bit different. We say the nature of ultimate reality is that you can never say enough about it. You can never completely finish. So go on talking. Say more. Say more. So there can be more and more and more renderings of Bhagavad Gita churning the 700 verses that Krishna spoke to Arjuna and drawing deeper and newer and fresher meaning from that always. So I've selected a verse from the Gita tonight relative to the occasion of Sri Krishna Janamastami where Krishna himself speaks about his appearance. Here it's on the board and you can follow if you like. You can read the Devanagari on the top or there it is in English letters. Janma karma cha me dibhyam evam yo veti Kyaktva, third line, deham punarjanmanaiti, maamiti, so arjuna. Krishna says, one who truly understands the divine nature of my birth and the activities is not reborn upon giving up his body, but comes to me, O arjuna. So it is the birthday of Krishna. So here he himself has said something about his birth and subsequent activities. This comes in chapter 4 beginning of chapter 4. The topic of the fourth chapter of Bhagavad Gita is knowledge, mystic insight. Mystic insight is derived from selfless action. Selfless action is that action that's not in the interest of material acquisition, renouncing the fruits of one's acquisition. So there's some sense that we get from Bhagavad Gita that there's a kind of getting that comes from giving. It may be invisible, but it's very tangible very satisfying. Love is, of course, about giving, not about getting. And as much as we attach getting to our giving, we are not giving and we are not getting. One of my young disciples asked me in a train once in India, he said, Guru Maharaj, he said, you know, I've been doing this now for a year or so, and I'm just not getting much. I said, that is the whole problem. You missed the whole teaching. It's not about getting. It's about giving. Stop thinking about getting. Start thinking about giving. How much should we give? No limit to that. Make an investment in the bank of service, and in time you'll find automatically you're living on the dividends without having to withdraw anything. The check will be sent to you. Something like that. This is a real life. And false life, that life in the realm of karma, is just the opposite. Like taking a loan from the bank. Looks like you have money, but you owe in interest, compound many times. Because you're going backwards, actually. If we come from negative numbers to zero, we may think we've gone somewhere. And it's true. If we empty ourselves out of material desire, then we've arrived at a kind of a positive zero, kind of a fullness and emptiness like the Buddha spoke of. But my question is, are there any positive numbers? Is there anything more to that? That is what Krishna Leela is about. That is what Krishna is saying here. I come to the world, but my appearance here and my activities, they're dibhyam, dibhyam, Ramanuja, Vishwanath, Chakravarti Thakur, Baldibhijibhushan, great commentators on the Gita in the devotional sects of Vedanta, Vaishnava sects of Vedanta, even the great Sridhar Swami commentator on Gita and Bhagavat, they have all said this word dibhyam, dibhyam, means supramundane, transcendental, not celestial, not merely heavenly, but transcendental. 
So it means, Krishna says, Janma karma chalmejivya, my activities, my appearance, that is transcendental. What we have here is a concept that there are two dramas going on. The larger circle is the drama of Krishna Leela, and the world is all part of that. What does Vedanta Sutra say? Lokabhattu, Leela Kuyuvalyam. With regard to the world, it is the joy of the Absolute. Out of joy, it is manifesting. Hard for us to understand that from our vantage point sometimes. We have to shift to his vantage point, to God's vantage point, to see that. This is the bigger picture, the bigger circle. Krishna Leela, the play of God. In the general sense, the whole show is the play of God. In the more specific sense, God has his own play, hidden from the world. You know Krishna, he's playing the flute, dancing with the peacock feather as a crown, ornamented with the minerals from the earth, very environmentally sensitive God and playful. He says in Gita, says, I'm the source of everything. I'm the supreme expression of divinity. We think, well, how can that be? He's just playing a flute and dancing. The source of all, everything must be very powerful and awe-inspiring and so forth. But we should understand that it takes power to play. If we want to play, you have to have some power base. If you want to take a vacation, you have to have worked for some time. You have to have put some money away in the bank. So to play all the time and only play, Krishna is the face of the Absolute depicted like this, only playing. So a thoughtful person will think, all-powerful, only playing. This is Krishna. So he has his own play. Oh, so many things he does, like stealing. People have a hard time understanding Krishna sometimes. Two policemen in India, they had a conversation. One said to the other, you know, it's a good thing that our God, Krishna, is a thief. Have you know the Leela, the divine play of Krishna? He thinks that food tastes better if you steal it from the neighbors. Very full of mischief. So he said, it's a good thing that our God is a thief. Other one said, what are you talking about? It's a whole problem. Everybody's on the take. Everybody's on the bribe. You can't do a damn thing in this country without bribing somebody. Part of the problem is our God is a thief and we try to tell people not to steal. So the first fellow said, no, no, you don't understand. It's a good thing that Krishna's a thief because thieves don't care for high walls and locked doors. And that's exactly what we've erected around our heart. High walls and locked doors. We don't want to let just anyone in. He goes in anyway. This is Krishna. He plays his flute and irresistible. Through his name, in Kirtanam, he goes everywhere. Even you're not participating, walking on the street, Krishnanam is going. In your ear and down to the heart. Even you don't understand it, what it means. Even I speak to you. I speak to you in a logical arrangement of words. I appeal to you in the language of logic ostensibly, but I'm really speaking language of love to you. You listen with your reasoning, and if it makes sense... Okay, okay I agree with that. I'll let it go in. No, I don't agree with that. I'm not letting that one go in. You're guarding your heart. We all do this. As much as we are reasonable people. You know, it is said that humans are distinguished from the animals by reasoning power. But Mahaprabhu Sri Chaitanya Dev liked to take it a step further. He said, oh, it's more than that. The distinguishing characteristic of the human society is that in human society... We can understand love. We can love in human society. And God has come in human-like form to teach us how to realize the full potential of our humanity. That is Krishna. Human-like. Fully human, fully divine. Very esoteric idea. He comes, and this is why he comes. One of the reasons. Paritranaya sadhunam vinashaya chaduskritam. One reason, he comes to do away with the non-godly elements. But that is secondary. Main reason? To cater to those who have some affection for him and to create affection for himself, which is in our real self-interest. By how? By displaying his lila, his all-attractive lila. So this is the play of God in the full sense of the term. And that big circle of the play of God is one circle, as I mentioned, and there's a smaller circle, and that is the human drama. The limitations of the human drama in terms of our thinking ourselves as humans in a limited sense. 
That means not in terms of understanding the potential of humanity. As I said, the potential of human life is that we can experience the full measure of love. But that requires also some knowledge, because what may appear to be love may not be love. You know, love is like art. It's like music. It's a kind of spontaneous and natural thing. Like when we hear music, we're attracted to the spontaneity of it. We would like to play it. But musicians will tell you, oh, they studied quite a bit, so many things. They learned to read music. and So there's an underlying kind of science and math, if you will, and philosophy to that. So to love also, to real love, universal love, love of God, love that is love, no matter how you look at it from whatever angle, this kind of love, there's a philosophy to that. It has its foundation in real knowledge, Knowledge of the difference between self and matter, for example. It's founded on that. In Gita we find some talk of love, and so much philosophy as well. So this human drama, when it's not brought in connection with the play of God, that bigger circle, I'm going to make it a little more complicated, so let your head spin a little with this. The bigger circle of God's play the smaller circle of the human drama, and sometimes the big circle of God's play comes inside the small circle of the human drama. This is what Krishna is saying here. Janma I come, I janma, I take birth in human society. Now that might be easy to misunderstand because Krishna is human-like. My grandma used to give an example. If the warden comes into prison, then he may appear to be behind bars, but he has the key. So Krishna comes of his own will. We are forced to come by the necessities born of our material identification. When we identify with matter, as I said earlier, we have necessities. I owe, I owe again. So off to work I go. Leela is not like that. Again, it is celebration. No necessity. Out of joy. So out of joy he comes, and that appearance is dibyam, transcendental. And his activity is dibyam, transcendental. So therefore he says what? Janma karma tome dibyam evam tattvataha. So you try to know about it, he says. Beti tattvata. Know it in truth, what it is. My birth, my appearance. And what will be the fruit of that? Punar janmana vitite. Punar janmana. Again taking birth? No. We are taking birth by the force of our material identification, our karma, our material desires. Again, our material life is like borrowing money from the bank, so we have incurred a debt. And that debt is perpetuating our life within material existence. Krishna is saying, this can come to an end. Punar janmana. You don't have to take birth again in another body, in another country, as a man or as a woman next time. That doesn't have to happen. Oh, this is the goal of really, in one sense, all religious traditions, liberation, salvation. Some people describe the material world differently, but everyone says it's a realm for transcending. There's something to be saved from, and it's ourself, really, that is perpetuating this human drama. But Krishna is saying a very profound thing here. He's saying, simply by understanding the dibyam, the transcendental nature of my birth and activities, this punarjana, now, this perpetuation of material life can end and stop. You know what endeavor people are making to stop this repetition of birth and death? Yeah, we've been to Kumbh Mela. So many yogis, Nagababas, dressed only in ash, only in ashes from the fire. What tapa, what austerity they're performing, living in Himalayas. What is their aim? Mukti, liberation, with such endeavor. Krishna is saying here something very wonderful. He says, oh, if you just understand the truth of my appearance, your repetition of birth will stop like that. Krishna is speaking here in fourth chapter. The context is that he's giving the history of yoga in order to gain credibility in the eyes of Arjuna. So this is an ancient path. It's been around for a long time. And in the context of explaining the history, he says, and I spoke it a long time ago. When I'm speaking to you, I spoke it a long time ago to the sun god. So Arjuna asked the question, he said, well, wait a minute, Krishna, my friend, 
Again, he's human-like. Krishna in the Gita is driving the chariot of Arjuna. He's like the taxi driver of Arjuna. Arjuna's saying, Turn here, go there. Krishna's turning, Krishna's going. This really is the essence of the whole Gita. That Krishna has taken a position subordinate to the love of his devotee. A very high ideal. Here Krishna says, Arjuna says to him, Oh, now, how is this, my dear friend, that you spoke this to the sun god millions of years ago? You're sitting right here. If you did it in another body, then you wouldn't remember it because people don't remember their past births for the most part. And how could you have done it in this form in which you're appearing to me, which is just, you're my friend, my chariot driver. Your form, in other words, appears to be human life, which has a life and limitations. Uh, so Krishna proceeds then to speak about the nature of his omniscience and eternality. The omniscience of his form and the eternality of his form. He says, oh, I can remember all these past events. You cannot. Then he gives this verse here, Janmakarma Jamedibhyam. He's explained something about himself and now he's saying, if you understand those things I talked about, that my appearance in this world, that is very extraordinary. It's Dibhyam. You understand it in truth for what it really is. Then, you not have to take birth again. This will end the limited sense of the human drama. And the human drama, when we are a player within that and apply ourselves in relation to the Leela of God that comes to this world, then the human drama expands and affords us entrance and access into the play of God, into the Leela of Krishna. This is a very extraordinary idea. Here in fourth chapter of the Gita, the principle of the avatar is being explained. How the play of God enters the human stage for the purpose of allowing humanity to realize its full potential in terms of love. As I said, Chaitanya Dev, he said, the difference between the human species and all of the species is not merely that they have the power to reason, but that they have the power to love, which indeed retires reason. Love knows no reason. I'm speaking to you here, as I said earlier, reasonably, with a logical arrangement of words I'm appealing to your intellect, and you're listening with it. And some of the things you're accepting and letting go into your heart, guarding it. But because what I'm talking about, that is Krishna, I mentioned earlier, Krishna's a thief, remember? He doesn't care for high walls and locked doors. He's not limited. He can go anywhere, anytime. He has an agenda. We have an agenda based on our sense of self. We come to a gathering like this. It might be a nice evening. Let me go. Let me hear from the Swami. It's a spiritual evening. I'll take something from that and add it to my life. But if we come to these kind of talks again and again after time, what we'll realize is that something very different is going on here. But it's the agenda of Krishna is being spoken of. And if we hear it, Again and again, at a certain point, we'll realize, huh, he has an agenda, Krishna, and I'm on it. I wanted to make him part of my agenda. That was a small idea. He has a big idea, a big agenda, and I'm part of that. We live in a small picture of what the world is gathered through our senses, as I said earlier. This is good, that's bad, this is happy, that's sad. I think it's good, you think it's bad. I think it's happy, you think it's sad. Which is it? The answer is, our instruments of perception are not giving us the full picture. So there must be a way to perceive beyond the limits of our mind and senses. That's what Krishna is talking about. That's what Harikata is about. This is Harikata, Krishna-kata. Talk about Krishna. It's about that. It meant to take us beyond the constraints of our mind and the limitations of our senses. And when we come out of the small picture of the world of our mind, it is such a small picture, and we are taking such pride in it that practically we exist that the whole world will fit within it. We want everyone to agree with us. We want everyone to live within the small world of our mind even when it's not making us happy. This is not a good idea. <laughs> but there's one thing that we get to hold on to in this small, limited world of our mind. Crippled sense of what possibilities life holds for us. We can gather only with the mind and senses. 
one thing that we cling to that holds us there. What is that? The idea, and it's only an idea, that we can be big, that at least we can be the center of it. And somehow we find that gratifying. It gives us some false sense of security and, and stability. But if we come out of that small world of the mind into the big picture, what we find is we're very small. And you have to realize your smallness to come out of that small picture into the big picture. But when we come into the big picture, what do we find? The one who's actually big comes into view. And he's very affectionate, very charming, very accommodating. You know, Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, end of the fifth chapter, he says, Sarvaloka Maheshwaram, everything belongs to me. He says, I am the owner and the controller of everything. When we hear this, we think, oh my God, <laughs> he's the controller and owner of everything. Nothing for me. Sarvaloka Maheshwaram, Yagya Tapasam, all of your austerities, everything's all meant for me. Everything belongs to me. Everything is mine. Nothing belongs to you. We're thinking, oh my, that's enough. I'm not, nothing. But then he says a nice thing in the next line. He says, He says, I own everything. I control everything. Everything belongs to me. Accept it. It's just true. It just happens to be the case. I'm just telling you the facts. But one other point I want to make to you, he says, Accept that reality, and I'm your friend. And what is it like to be the friend of the person who knows and owns everything? Then we don't have to trouble ourselves with knowing and owning. Whatever we need to know, whatever we need to have, let us provide it for us. So to come out of the small picture where we're allowed to think, and it's just a thought, that we're big, and enter into the big picture where in reality our smallness comes into view, that one who is also big comes into view, and it's very comforting. So we should try to embrace the descent of Krishna in this world, the descent of God's play within the human drama, because he has come only for the purpose of bringing us into the big picture of what our real potential in life is. So try to know him in truth, he says, and you will bring an end to birth and death. And in this Gaudiya Sampradaya, this Gaudiya Vedanta, this particular lineage in which we come, you'll find how to know him in truth, that is the emphasis. How to know him most completely, most comprehensively, that is the emphasis. And I'll end with this. As I mentioned, Krishna is driving the chariot of Arjuna. He says, Krishna, turn left, turn right, like rickshaw, come, taxi. And Krishna's obeying like this. What does it mean? That while every religious and spiritual tradition, for the most part, teaches that God is the most worshipable object, we are teaching about the worshipable object of God, a very unique idea. He says here, You should know the nature of my appearance and activities in truth. How to know someone in truth is to know their shakti, know their energy by which they do things. Then you know all about them, what they do, what they're like. So by knowing the Shakti of Krishna, we can know him in truth. Krishna comes, it's true for us, that is true. Krishna comes to give pleasure to his devotees, to establish religious principles. But there's something else that drives him on a deeper level. The love of his devotees drives him, and the love of his devotees reaches the zenith, embodied in Radha. That embodiment of love, we are teaching that that love of Krishna, that is, conquers Krishna, Krishna says, knowing me in truth conquers birth and death. And knowing him in truth means to know him through the eyes of Radha. You see, Krishna is a very extraordinary idea of Godhead because when we speak of Krishna, we speak of God who forgot that he's God. He remembers here in Bhagavad Gita that this is Krishna on the battlefield. This is Krishna as a prince. But Gaudiya Sampradaya, we are interested in Krishna in the village. That cowherder with the peacock feather, and in Gita, princely Krishna speaks to us Upanishadic wisdom and so forth, but he himself, his heart is beating only for that Vrindavan Leela. In that Leela, Krishna has forgotten that he's God, overpowered by the love of his devotees. So to know him in truth means to know him through devotional culture, through love, through the culture of love. This is bhakti. And bhakti is most fully expressed 
in Brajlila and in a person embodied in Sri Radha. This is the teaching of Sri Chaitanya Dev. So if you want to know Krishna, we should after hearing what he said here. Then this is a good lineage, like Maheshwar Prabhu is holding these kind of programs here. He is representative of this lineage. If you are interested a little bit from this talk to pursue what Krishna has said, to know Krishna in truth, it's a very good place to do that. Because many traditions speak about Krishna have affection for Krishna. But no one says as flattering things about Krishna as this lineage does. We are flattering him all the time, constantly. And he's affected by that. He's charmed by that. So I humbly request, I suggest to you, if you find some interest in this, you try to pursue this Gaudiya Vedanta. It is full of wisdom and knowledge. We can comment on any sloka, Vedanta, Sutra, Bhagavad, Upanishad, Gita, any slok, anywhere, any poetic verse, profound verse, anywhere in revealed scripture. We are not lacking in any knowledge in our Sampradaya. Some people think Bhakti tradition, but it's for the less intelligent, for the more emotional. But this is Bhakti Vedanta, Gaudiya Vedanta. No, Bhakti is not lacking, not for less intelligent, but for those who see the limits of intelligence and reason power and want to retire it, which is what love is about. As I said earlier, love knows no reason. Love retires reason. Even spiritual reasoning is retired. And in this Krishna that we are interested in, this Braj Krishna, this all-playful Krishna, who has no time even to speak this Bupanishadic wisdom. We have to listen to that to enter there, but entering there, no more discussion of Vedanta, no more discussion of Upanishads. Lost in love. There the absolute, showing its fullest face, the infinite, so close to the finite. If the finite jeev, soul, wants to come in intimate connection with the infinite, in order for that to be possible, the infinite must take on a finite-like appearance. Otherwise, intimacy will not be possible. You understand what I'm saying? If God was sitting on the seat here and I said, this is God, we would all say, oh my God. And we would move back a little bit. We'd, oh my God, it's God. So if there's to be intimacy with the absolute, intimacy like you have with your friend, with your lover, that kind of intimacy and more, because your friend and lover is only a composite of material desires and sensual input derived from the world, filtered into the mind, as I said earlier. We're not getting at the real sense of self there. But just to give you an example, imagine you might love a friend and love your lover, and millions and trillions and unlimited more. Krishna is that manifestation of the Absolute that provides you the capacity, the facility to experience that kind of love unlimitedly in relationship with him. And if you're going to be the friend of Krishna as your heart calls in your bhajan, the lover of Krishna as your heart calls for in your bhajan, then if that bhajan is mature, and that will take long, long time, serious practice, serious sadhana and culture, if that interest comes, then he will show that face to you. He will forget his godhood and appear like Krishna. This is what Krishna means. Krishna, in the pure heart of his unalloyed bhaktas, there's no difference between those two. Krishna is that face of the Absolute that corresponds with that kind of love. Intimacy, such that the Absolute appears finite-like. Krishna appears human-like, but he warns us here, it's not exactly human-like, it's not exactly human, it's fully transcendental my appearance. This is the appearance of Krishna. It corresponds with the heart of his devotees. So, as I say, I'd better check myself because I said earlier we can go on and talk about this forever. So I know you've been patient to listen to me and I'm a little long-winded tonight, but it is a special night, so you please forgive me and let me conclude with that and give you an opportunity to ask any questions. Yes? Do you see that the human race is evolving in their capacity for loving? Good question. Repeat the question. The question is, do I see the human race as evolving in terms of their capacity to love? Yes, but not in and of itself. We call this Kali-yuga. It means in the cycle, Hindu cosmic time cycle, 
Kali Yuga is the last Yuga. It's not a time of love. Nonetheless, the human potential for loving is growing because there is a very powerful, uh, comprehensive dispensation of divinity in the form of Sri Chaitanya's teachings, which is the Sankirtan of chanting the holy names of Krishna. So there's a kind of a period within this Kali Yuga that's um, very auspicious, at which time this chanting of Krishna's name is widely propagated. Yes, sir. You know, I've been the prose of your marvelous translation and I'm enjoying it so much. But Thank you. But there's one statement that I am absolutely astonished at and it says, eight billion six hundred million years ago. Will you please enlighten me <laughs> about that statement? You're talking about maybe my Guru Maharaj's edition of this. He gives that figure. My Guru Maharaj has an edition of Bhagavad Gita a famous one, and in that edition he, in the fourth chapter, in fact the chapter that we're discussing, he gives that as a history of what? Krishna's appearance, right? Yes. Yes. It means a long time. (laughs) A long time ago. You know, when you talk about things of this nature, then there's some limitation with language also. Things are mentioned in scripture, details are given like this and all, and we, with our conditioned, materially conditioned minds, we tend to gravitate towards a more literalistic interpretation of the scripture sometimes, or a very unliteral one, which really takes us outside of its its parameters, and we imagine ourselves into some kind of spiritual life. But to find some kind of a balance, really, between a literal interpretation that doesn't really give the spirit of the text, and in the name of having a liberal one, one that just ends up being our imagination, the fine line. And that's really the dynamics of spiritual life, to be a living spiritual person. People tell me, for example, sometimes, Swamiji, uh, you know, it is not all, uh, the truth is not in the book. That's true, it's not in the book, but there's an awful lot of it that does come in the book. And if you first learned that, maybe be ready for the part that's not in the book. You cannot just jump to the part that's not in the book. And in the name of, it's not all in the book, not read the book either. So, yes. What would that have to say about grace? What you're saying is then that, that in other words, I have to study and get an intellectual understanding and, that, and only then will grace come? No. I'm saying that grace comes in the form of offering you an opportunity to engage your intelligence spiritually. Now, you want to do that. That's part of your, become positive, your sense of self, your intelligence. So, Scripture is the grace of God, a form of it, that gives you the opportunity to fully immerse your intellect as well. That should be immersed as well. But, if you don't have a big intellectual aptitude for studying, you are not barred from that. Actually, intelligence is a great burden in many respects. If we're too much attached to that, oh, we require so many answers, it has to be make sense. And, you know, it actually, reality doesn't make any sense. That's a fact. There is no meaning to life. It may sound a little odd, but there is no meaning to life in as much as life ultimately is about love. There's a kind of meaning and knowing to love, but it's a kind of The knowledge in love is like, when you love, you know what to do. It's essential knowledge. We burden ourselves with so much knowledge and information, it's not essential. But in love, there's a kind of knowing. We know what to do. Yes? Why, as the image, as the uh, devotional image, why Krishna as opposed to Jiva, for the Western mind? This has been a concern of mine for many, many years. is perfect for the Western mind. <laughs> Where it used to be a time when a man and woman would marry and stay together. But now when the magic is gone, we tend to go somewhere else. 
not realizing it was only magic, and we look for it again, and again we are tricked, and we don't find the real substance of, of life that we're looking for. We get together with the young lady, a young man gets together with a young lady, and there's some chemistry, and there's some magic, and sometimes after a while, the, the magic disappears. And rather than getting down to what's really important then, sacrificing for one another, and making for a meaningful relationship, moving away from infatuation. We move after infatuation and look for it again. It's pretty common in our society. Years ago, when my parents were having me, it wasn't as prominent. It's not a big deal. So you know that Krishna, he, he, um, he has many milkmaidens who are his closest associates. And love of Krishna is called paramore love. So the Western mind is prone to this. Paramore love means you might be married to someone, but you love somebody else. Not a good idea morally, not a good idea spiritually. You won't even get to the spiritual plane like that. But Krishna in, in the spiritual plane is depicted as such. So we can dovetail this propensity and love Krishna. And other many other things to say about Krishna also. Shiva is in meditation. Shiva is in meditation. Krishna is dancing and playing the flute. Which would you rather do, dance and play the flute or meditate? We meditate because we think we should. I'd better spend some time meditating. But our tendency is more for dancing. So here is a god you can meditate on. Krishna is moving, dancing. You just have to still the mind. But if you think of Krishna, your mind can move and be still at the same time. You can move from Leela to Leela of Krishna and your mind will be stilled in terms of interaction with material existence. Everyone wants to do whatever they want, whenever they want. We all want to do whatever we want, whenever we want. That's just the way we are. And Krishna is doing whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Shiva's not doing that, he's meditating. Shiva has something to attain. Krishna exemplifies the Absolute having attained itself. How do we know that Shiva is not meditating because he wants to meditate? Well, he does want to meditate, but for a reason. And if you study the doctrines, Shastra, about Shiva, you'll find that he has an ambition. His ambition is actually what we call Krishna consciousness. Shiva in his full face, full face of Mahadev, is a Vaishnav. So uh, Shiva wants love of Krishna. And through dhyana, through meditation, he's seeking to attain that. You see, if you're full, then you get up from your meditation and dance. <laughs>